On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Uh, two broad themes, I think, across the front pages of today's uh, Sunday papers. Uh, some about refugees and those coming into the country, and then quite a lot of coverage about the state's attitude to some of the most vulnerable uh, who are already here, and some of the legal uh, tactics that are pursued against those people trying to get their, their just rewards or their restitution. Uh, we'll start with the Sunday Independent. President Michael Higgins, Michael D. Higgins, rather. Has anyone ever called him Michael Higgins? It's like, who's, going, who's Michael Higgins? If you ask people on the street, do you know who Michael Higgins is? Be like, who's Michael Higgins? President Michael D. Higgins, uh, to, to give him his full title. Um, President Michael D. Higgins has intervened in the immigration controversy as the latest Sunday Independent Ireland Thinks Opinion poll finds a majority now believe that the country has taken in too many refugees. In an interview with this newspaper today, President Higgins describes as unforgivable those who are sowing hate over the location of refugee centres and says that they, quote, must be opposed. He's also called for the country to be filled with services to counter the growing opposition to such centres. Today's poll of issues that should be prioritised finds that immigration on 19% has increased by a significant 10 percentage points in a month. It also finds that most people, 56% of respondents, believe Ireland has taken in too many refugees in the past year. 30% disagree and 14% are unsure. The poll also reveals the public to be evenly divided on opponents to the location of refugee centres. 48% say that those who oppose those refugee centres are predominantly concerned local residents and 44% believe that they are far-right agitators. Uh, we're going to be talking to the guy who's um, carried out that opinion poll for the Sun Independent, Kevin uh, Kevin of uh, Ireland Thinks, Kevin Cunningham of Ireland Thinks. We're going to be talking to him in a couple of minutes time about all of that um, the front page of the Sunday Times uh, a time limit on lo- how long support will be offered to Ukrainian refugees is being considered by the government as efforts accelerate to tackle the growing refugee crisis uh, Simon Harris confirmed that the decision making process on international protection applicants is being sped up uh, to deport those from any foreign country who are found to be here illegally more than 640 deportation officers uh, orders rather have been made since September of which 123 have been served since the start of 2023 that's obviously in the last five weeks or so the government is continuing to scramble to provide emergency beds for those arriving here, says the Sunday Times, with fears that 180,000 people could be in the system by the end of this year. At present, there are 54,000 Ukrainians and 20,000 asylum seekers uh, in state accommodation. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, a mother living in direct provision says she is living in fear for her children as protests against immigrants continue to spread across the country. Uh, Ngozi Olurebi, who is 40 years old, originally from Nigeria, uh, fled her home country 18 months ago with her, ch- her three children in order to give them a safer space to grow up. Like thousands of other non-nationals, she has worked in the care sector since receiving her permit to work and she now works as in a nursing home looking after elderly people near the direct provision where she works. Uh, but she says she feels scare- uh, f- scared. Fear is the main thing. Some people are mean, some people are not and it's mixed. No one has come near my centre yet. For now, I see the government condemning the acts. There aren't protests everywhere. If it could be contained, she says, it would be better. I haven't told my children, she says, about those protests because it makes me worried. I want to be in a safe place with my children. If it becomes something that happens here regularly, then I will be scared about the future, she says. Uh, That's the front page of the Sunday Times. Um, The Business Post is one of the papers that leads uh, with ongoing coverage about the state's response to um, various um, legal legal issues arising in the Department of Health. Uh, The main story is about the Irish Cancer Society, which says it is astonished at efforts made by the lobby group Insurance Ireland to delay and deter planned legislation uh, to stop insurance companies and banks from penalising cancer survivors. Uh, And the sidebar story 
is that legal strategies to secretly settle cases relating to children and vulnerable people wronged by the state are an active and ongoing tactic by government departments, according to two legal experts. Uh, The government is under mounting pressure over the use of the strategy to fight cases outside the courts and to settle them before the details become public. Uh, Speaking to the Business Post, Gareth Noble, who's a leading children's lawyer with KOD Lyons, and Conor O'Mahony, the Deputy Dean of the School of Law in UCC, say the tactic is widely deployed by departments. Uh, Details of how the state has followed legal advice to contain legal cases and settle them individually have been revealed in the last week. Uh, The headline on a a spread inside the paper about that story puts it very succinctly. It says, I'm surprised that people are surprised by this. They don't believe that there is anything surprising uh, about news of that being a formal state uh, policy. And finally for now, the Irish Mail on Sunday, which, uh, as people will remember, uh, was the first to, to lead the way with the reporting on this about the state's attitude to lawsuits about nursing home charges. Uh, their story today is that when Leo Varadkar was health minister in 2015, he brought a memo to cabinet proposing to secretly remove redress payments, uh, entitlements of family members affected by the hepatitis C scandal. Uh, the revelation is contained in leaked confidential documents obtained by the Mail on Sunday today. Uh, the paper says it will heap further pressure on the Taoiseach as the government continues to come under fire for its continuing litigation strategy, pitting the full firepower of the state against some of its most vulnerable citizens. Uh, Varadkar's proposed cuts would have completely excluded dependent relatives of those infected in the Hep C blood scandal from the compensation scheme. Furthermore, the memo brought to Cabinet stressed that the plan should remain secret so as to avoid a wave of claims. However, so controversial was the original hepatitis C scandal that the proposals were shelved and the terms of the compensation tribunal were not affected. Uh, We're going to discuss that uh, to kick off our uh, review of the papers in a little bit more depth. I'm joined in studio uh, by Tanya Ward, who's the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, and Sheena Cahill, Account Director at DHR Communications, a former President of the Union of Students in Ireland. Uh, Good morning morning to you both. Um, before I get too much into the, um, the the Mail on Sunday story, there is a statement from a spokesperson for Leo Varadkar, which I probably should read some out of just to give some context to the discussion that we're about to have. Uh, the spokesperson says this morning, that this matter was considered in 2014 and 2015 when health budgets were being cut due to the deep recession that the country was enduring at the time. Ireland had been bailed out and very difficult decisions were then being taken on a monthly basis, says the spokesperson. The then Minister for Health had a duty to consider all options for savings that would not adversely affect patients in need of medical care. This was one of those decisions. It would not have affected the end of the entitlement to compensation of anyone infected with hepatitis C or HIV. The limited resources available were focused on patients, including the provision of direct antiviral drugs for hep C patients with the greatest clinical need, such as the life-saving Sovaldi medication. The minister ultimately decided not to proceed with the proposal. He discussed it with senior cabinet colleagues who agreed with him that the proposal should not proceed and there was no cabinet decision. Had it proceeded, it would have done so in a manner, in a public manner, uh, given that legislation would have to be passed through the Dáil and Shannon, accompanied by discussion and debate with full public scrutiny. However, given that the matter did not proceed, the minister did not want to uh, continue uh, so as to uh, avoid causing unnecessary distress. That as a spokesperson uh, from a uh, for Leo Varadkar uh, in a statement to us this morning. Um, as I say, Tanya Ward and Sheena Cahill with me in studio. Um, Tanya, um, what do you make, first of all, of uh, this Irish Mail on Sunday revelation that Leo Varadkar at least considered uh, cutting redress for the families of those who have been infected with hepatitis C, but moreover about the general coverage and this idea that we shouldn't be surprised that the containment of litigation has been an ongoing state strategy? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just more of the same. This doesn't surprise me at all, to be honest. And I'm sure if you FOI, you know, the government continually, you'd find lots of examples where they were trying to limit compensation uh, in, in different ways. And I mean, 
I, I know a lot of the officials involved in these in these kind of situations and they would think they were doing the right thing. They would be saying, you know, if we pay out here, if we pay out there, we won't have money for mm. services, etc. Which is an argument we've heard from Leo Varanker and Michal Martin in the Dáil this week. You don't spend it. each euro once and we'd rather spend the children's yeah. budget today yeah. on children's services today yeah, rather right. than dealing with, right. with restitution for the past. And they're echoing what they're hearing from the officials and government essentially. That's what you're getting back, you know, and that's what's presented to them. I mean, it's, it's a very similar debate and discussion around mother and baby homes as well because even myself sometimes when I look let's say the, the Department of Children how split it is so much of it is focused and the officials are focused on trying to deal with redress and what happened to people from the past the children of the past and then I look at well what's, how many officials many people do work in government for the children of today so it, it is a challenge but saying that I think it, it, there's a broader piece and it's echoed in the Business Post um, both Conor Mahoney, Professor of Law in UCC, and Garrett Noble, who will mm. be one of the key litigators in children's yeah. services. And there is a real problem with the way the state deals with human rights. This is actually what this is about. This is about human mm. rights to its core. Um, so, you know, it, it, what they're both talking about is um, quite often uh, an individual's rights has been breached. Um, and what the response will often be is um, fight, 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 deny, deny, deny. And the legal advice from the lawyers, of course, that's what they, that's what they would say and they would drag it out all the way and most litigants to be honest most people ringing our helpline the Children's Rights Alliance or accessing the advice clinics they give up actually to be honest Mm. they're exhausted they're dealing with day to day life yeah. And it's also very frightening going down to the high court mm. uh, because if you actually own a house or half a house, you know, there's a risk that you could have your, your costs awarded against you. And then you also have to, you, you, it's very limited what you can get legal aid for. So the state knows that and the state's lawyers know that who are who represent the state. And if there's a real case at hand, often what they'll try and do at the very end is settle on the steps and you'll get some sort of settlement because what they're trying to make sure is that the, 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 the it doesn't get to the courts mm. because if the courts get there it they'll, becomes a public exactly, issue. Exactly, but they'll say, yeah, there's been a human rights breach and they want to avoid that. So that's what's going on. Actually, what should be happening is the state has a duty and obligation to respect your rights. Human rights are legal rules setting mm. down how the state and the arms of the state are meant to behave in relation to you. And that's the first thing they should be looking at instead of, yeah, we have human rights. They kind of ignore them. And then when it comes up, there's a breach of human rights and they're trying to find ways not to pay out. Yeah. Because one of your human rights is you have a right to a remedy if your rights have been breached. Um, and that's what's going on here. And people try to go to the courts and try and get a remedy. They're trying to get a payout in mm. respect to that. So their human rights, in a way, then are being breached twice because if, or I don't know whether it's necessarily a human right to have access to a disability allowance payment, for example, which is one of the issues well, that we're covering yeah, the there week. Will be, yeah. So if that is a human right to access that and you're being denied that right because the payment is being wrongly taken from you, yeah. they're also denying your human rights by making it so difficult to get a remedy for that. Yeah, that's right. They're, so they're it's a breach breaching. of the double. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, that, that's, it. that's sending a shiver down the civil servants and all of the legal teams as well, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's the, yeah. If you're if you're in a the position, dr- you know, the dreadful thing is I don't know whether you're being sarcastic when you say that. No, I'm not. Okay, no, I'm yeah. not I, yeah, I'm no, I'm actually not because I think if you're in the position as an official in the departments, um, uh, you're trying you, your your default position is to protect the the pocket of money that that your department is looking after. So it's and it's to be it's to suggest efficiencies to your minister. Mm. And it is up to that minister to consider is this proposal coming from my um advisors or the civil servants something I should bring to cabinet or is it not? Because politically does it make sense, but also from a point of equity and equality and fairness and human rights, is this something that should even be coming 
into cabinet. Mm. Um, I think though this Gavin to me has the bang of if you are in politics but more specifically in government long enough all of the really crap ideas and really bad ideas you've ever had will eventually come to light. <laughs> so like ultimately of course and I don't mean this lightly but like mm. in this situation with the with the Hep C stuff and um, yeah. So the front page story in the mail today. Brought this proposal to government, which yeah. was, and what you know, obviously, what mm. the Irish Daily Mail are making hay over is the fact that the you know the the, the document yeah. around this proposal had loads of stamps saying confidential, secret, don't tell the public yeah. about it mm. because yeah. we don't trust the public, uh, which is absolutely fair and I think is a, is a good criticism. But ultimately, Leo Varadkar did, uh, you know, did actually take this terrible idea to cabinet for discussion. Well, now ultimately it didn't pass. Yeah, like, well, luckily I, it I didn't. should clarify actually that when I spoke to the to his spokesperson this morning with a view to getting that statement that I read out yeah. uh, when it started this item uh, I was told that in fact it never actually made it to okay, cabinet. So it didn't get to cabinet. That table. Leo Varadkar uh, asked for this option to be put together mm. had a discussion with other ministers uh, on the margins of a cabinet or kicked it around I presume with the mm. Tisha Kinthonish day of the day and they decided not to pursue it. Now you might argue that there's multiple reasons why they decided not to pursue it. You could say, doesn't Leo Varadkar deserve credit for not going through with this? You could also say, well, it was on Leo Varadkar's watch that the idea was floated or at least put together in a memo in the first place. So he can simul- it's like Schrodinger's policy. He simultaneously proposes, it I mean, but I, also I takes credit for not yeah, bringing it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can hold him to account for ideas that are floating about because they're the politicians. Ideas are floating mm. about all the time. But, he, is, but he, is the, yeah. he was the minister responsible in a department that had the memo put together with a view to discussing the, it with others. the premise of this idea has come to pass in other areas that we have now seen obviously revealed in, particularly in the last but the week. nurse and home charges yeah, I mean exactly. like you know the, the, some of the stuff that was written in those memos um, you know will only let, let, let's hold it back I mean this was always this was going to come out into the public domain at some point mm. so I think this generation of civil servants probably have learned from the last generation of civil servants I doubt you see this kind of stuff in writing but yeah. the piece around it's the legal strategy mm. that's the stuff I think that goals yeah. the public and if like you're like you're in government just as because a lawyer advised you to do this doesn't mean it's right and just and it's in the public interest yeah. to implement See, it. I, I think they're having their cake and eating it in two ways. Firstly, you know, I, I totally get that if I were a civil servant and I had this budget, I would absolutely want the budget to be reserved for uh, today's issues. I wouldn't want a certain amount of the budget to have to be hived off to deal with legacy uh, issues of the past. Mm. But at the same time, if the budget has gotten into a good shape because you've denied people their due in the past, then it's not your budget now to hold on to. You it's shouldn't be so parsimonious. It's not cake anymore, is well, it? This is, you know, yeah. It's not yours to hang on to in the first place because you got it through ill means. So I don't think you should be so protective about money that you've now got in the state coffers that you shouldn't have been able to hang on to in the first place. On the, the nursing home strategy, I also think that the government is having its cake and eating it because... Okay, yes, at an official level, the government may never have conceded the point that it is responsible for covering the, the charges of private nursing homes. And, and fair enough, you can argue that point and say, right, let's have a test case and let's do it. But then why is the state so afraid of the discovery process in a legal case mm. where you'd have to share your, your paperwork over? If they thought that the, the case was as robust as Leo Varadkar made it out to be in the Dole, then why not at least see the colour of your money? Why not go to a court and have it out? Why are you so petrified of there being a single case making it public that it is your insistence that all of this needs to be stifled and settled in a way that that doesn't have any transparency? And I haven't heard anyone in government try to explain how you can have both at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pretty obvious there was a human rights issue there and the, the, the state doesn't pay out money unless underlying there's a clear legal reason why they have to. So, you know, it's not it's not made up. I mean, you, there's plenty of people taking cases against the state that go nowhere. So I, I, I think what's underlying it here is uh, a legal strategy playing out. It was they, they didn't want to disclose the documents because if they got the lawyers got hold of the documents, it would reveal what was going on behind and, closed and doors. And the extent to which the state would now be liable um, you know, to a, a huge number of people, very likely, um, yeah. for for different things that happened over the last number of years. So, if you are trying, like, certainly, I think the the suggestion, certainly made by the Daily Mail, that uh, there is a huge reluctancy by the state to hand over a number of documents at the discovery stage, as you say, of the court, and that they'd rather settle out of court with people almost on an individual basis mm. than allow a scenario where there would be that legal entitlement, um, you know. On on mass, I suppose, uh, to to apply for um, uh, you know remittance. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the state is certainly trying to defend itself in advance, but it's not a good look. Well, again, because this the, the Mail on Sunday explained it pretty well last year that uh, or last week rather, um, when the Health Act came in in 1970, and then nursing home charges were supposed to be free for the majority of people, the state realised that it actually kind of needed the revenue that it couldn't really afford to do it, and this then goes back to it. I understand why you'd rather keep your billions now, but your billions now are based on the millions you had a few years ago which you shouldn't have had because they should have been providing services that people were entitled to free. Um, there is one but, line but, but, in today's... This is going on everywhere though. I mean, special education is probably the sharp end of it. Yeah, well, but it's going special on, education yeah. and child autism yeah, services yeah, as, yeah, as yeah, Gareth Noble yeah, points yeah. out in, in the Business Post as well and uh, don't get me started on that. Uh, I'm walking that walk at the minute. Um, there's one piece in the Mail on Sunday today uh, and uh, you will not be surprised that this is uh, a cabinet source speaking to the Mail on Sunday uh, under cover of anonymity. Uh, explaining the thinking on the um, the nursing homes litigation strategy, the minister says this issue does not have a public face. Cervical cancer had Vicky Phelan, hepatitis C had Bridget McColl. This does not have a public face that can be put on the six one news. Another source said it's not pretty. It looks terrible, but the plan is to hang tough and see it out. The public will forget. Now. Is is there some truth to the idea that because there isn't a face that you can put in the news, some sort of exemplar who has, you know, managed to raise public awareness, that's the reason why it's not a bigger scandal? I don't think people. I don't think people are going to forget about this. Um, I think the the point made actually as well might have been even in the same article in the Daily Mail. Uh, was that there was comparisons drawn to this kind of thing, like what happened with when they tried to take the universal uh, medical card off over 70s in 2009, I think it was. Yeah. And then the kind of water charges movement uh, kind of that happened six years later. And the idea that, you know, you could you could pull the rug mm. uh, out from under people um, is somehow acceptable. Um, I do think that, of course, those other issues mentioned had a public face for, as you say, the 6-1 news. Um, and in this case, a lot of the people directly impacted um, may now have passed on very likely mm, in yeah. the intervening years because they were in care homes and nursing care in the state and have now uh, passed away. And so it's their families who are picking up the pieces, but also picking up the financial cost that they should never have borne in the first place. And that's where that human rights and very much a rights mm. approach and fairness approach needs to apply because those families have been put under significant pressure yeah. and continue to uh, to, to feel that uh, today. Uh, ben and Wicklow text in to say that in, as regards hepatitis C, the state saw Bridget McCall not as a victim, but as the enemy, uh, which I suspect is probably a fair uh, analysis of where the state was at the time. Uh, somebody else texts in to say, Gavin, I don't understand if the nursing home and disability payment issue was sent to the PAC in 2019 
2017. Why is nobody asking if they reviewed and responded to the letter? The PAC is often celebrated, but perhaps it is now time to question that. Well, I know the PAC, one of the reasons why there were calls last Monday for an emergency meeting of the PAC uh, was to get to the bottom of what they did about any correspondence. The one thing I will say is that it's my understanding, and I'll go to a break after this, um, that Shane Corr, the whistleblower, uh, when he uh, disclosed this to the Taoiseach and to some members of the Oireachtas, uh, if he sent it to PAC, my understanding is he did it in the days coming up to Christmas 2019. Now, I don't say that as any kind of an explainer as to why it kind of fell off the agenda. But a lot of Oireachtas members don't have access to their Oireachtas email if they're not on site. Uh, they need somebody to be in the office in Leinster House to pick up that correspondence, which means that if you got an email as a TD on December the 22nd or 23rd, if there was nobody in the office, that email doesn't even get seen until the new year. And there was a general election called before the doll even resumed from its recess. So there's a fair chance it may have been sitting in many, many TDs, possibly every TD's inbox. Yeah over that Christmas period in 2019 but nobody was at the desk yeah. with the wherewithal to go and look at it and then yeah. by the time yeah. the doll never got to come sure, back for sure, to even, follow it up. Even, even those t- that timing is actually often used in government to be honest to get yeah. stuff through yeah. mm. because because they know a general election is about to be called or because the doll is in, in, in recess so that would make sense why it didn't yeah. hit. It didn't yeah, hit. why it didn't get picked up. Uh, tweet in from Gavin Tobin uh, who uh, is d- listening to our discussion about the state's approach to litigation. He says that he's in his seventh year of discovery facing the state uh, as regards an issue in the Air Corps about alleged exposure to toxic chemicals. Uh, there have been 100 fatalities, uh, he says, of members of the Air Corps with an average age of 53 years. He went to the Supreme Court in 2019 to win the right to discovery and he's still awaiting outcome of a High Court case which is trying to force compliance with the Supreme Court order. Seventh year of discovery trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, he says um, let's go back to the opinion poll on the front page of the Sunday Independent about um, not alone party support but also public attitudes to the uh, level of immigration and in particular the level of um, Ukrainian refugees and indeed others uh, coming into the state uh, Kevin Cunningham is the MD of Ireland Thinks he's also a lecturer at TU Dublin uh, he is the person responsible for this opinion poll and he's with us on the line Kevin thank you for talking to us uh, this morning talk us through the headline findings about public attitudes to refugees could you please so, uh, I mean, we asked a question uh, which is posed, has Ireland taken in too many refugees in the past year? Uh, to which 56% said yes, 30% said no, and uh, 14% said not sure. We haven't asked that sort of question uh, before. Uh, we have asked other sorts of questions in relation to the sorts of numbers that people want to take in relation to Ukrainian refugees. And in recent months, we noticed that those sorts of numbers started to come down that the level of enthusiasm people had for Ukrainian refugees in particular uh, sort of tailed off a little bit. I'm not saying that, you know, Irish attitudes are very, very anti-refugees, but it seems like there's a general sense that people feel that we've taken in slightly too many, I guess. I think that's that's basically where, where you'd have to place the middle of Ireland at this point in time. Uh, and politically speaking, among those who do believe that we have taken in too many refugees, can it be attributed to any particular side of the political spectrum or any particular party where, where that feeling is, is more profa- pronounced? Yeah. I, you know, the funny thing about doing a, an opinion poll is sometimes you have limited sample sizes to break things down demographically. So I'm sometimes a little bit more cautious about doing that sort of thing. But... In the case of uh, political party support and attitudinal questions, which sort of relate to politics, obviously, those correlations are often sufficiently strong that even with small samples, you can get a very good sense of where supporters of individual political parties are. And in this case, uh, of those that support AIMTO, eight, 89% uh, agree with this statement that Ireland has taken in too many refugees in the past year. 76% of those that support independent candidates, 61% of Sinn Féin. Generally speaking, you would have to say that the 
the kind of left to right sort of um, a dynamic of Irish politics, in the, at least socially speaking, is evident in this data. You know, at the other end of the scale, only 16% of solidarity, 21% of Green Party supporters. So there's very much a sort of a, a social uh, right-left yeah. sort of dynamic in Irish politics. Uh, the I interesting s- thing is, obviously, sorry for jumping in, the, no, the interesting thing is, what we've seen in, in recent months when we look at this sort of question is that A2 supporters, although they're very small, but also independents, people who support independent candidates, generally speaking, uh, take the far more conservative position. And broadly speaking, while people say there isn't a far-right party in Ireland, you know, essentially for quite a number of years, that far-right vote has actually always been concentrated within uh, independent mm-hmm. candidates. And for some reason, I think that because, you know, independent candidates are actually quite unique, other no other country really has in anything level to like the level of elected electoral independent representatives. And basically that's the main reason why we don't have like one of mm. these kind of significant far-right parties. Uh, I, guess. I suppose you could probably extrapolate that if a lot of those TDs are, are very localised or hyper-localised and that they, they try to represent local issues, then in other places where that vote translates as nationalism, then in our case we just go a level further and we just translate it to localism. Um, going to the back yeah. to the main question of whether Ireland has taken in too many refugees in the past year, um, can you say whether people think that that is, uh, do they just mean that as an anti-refugee sentiment or do they just mean that although they might still be very gracious and very welcoming that simply Ireland doesn't have the resources to cater to the number that we've taken? Okay, so I, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I can draw on another question that I asked purely for personal sort of academic purposes that I, I occasionally ask additional questions which are just out of an academic interest. And there's a question that's asked quite frequently in the European Social Survey, which asks people whether they think the government should be generous uh, in judging applications for refugees. And and this particular question has been the strongest correlate of support for far-right parties uh, across European politics. And Ireland in general uh, is still, relatively speaking, more welcoming of refugees compared to other countries. That generosity, let's say, has declined slightly. In this case, it's 38% that either agree or disagree with the government should, should be generous in judging the application of refugees. Uh, in other countries, generally speaking, that's always been a far lower. Ireland used to be the, the most generous in, in terms of its attitudes towards refugees uh, on a par with Portugal, but clearly this has uh, declined a little bit recently. Mm. And the other thing that's interesting about that question is it gives an indication of of the ceiling of support for a putative sort of far-right party. Uh, the percentage of people that would strongly disagree is, generally speaking, uh, seem to be sort of a ceiling uh, for support, and in this case, it's like 14%, which which reflects the other uh, figures in the data because, you know, when you cross-reference uh, that headline question of whether people think uh, they've taken in too many refugees with the other question, which asks people, uh, you know, what are the most important issues for which uh, 19% say uh, immigration is an important issue. If you kind of cross-reference them and, and identify the fact that uh, 8 out of 10 people who believe immigration is the most important issue also believe that we're we've taken in too many okay. and that kind of comes down to 16 percent so it is kind of like around 16 some of the high teens percentage where you have that kind of uh support for you know probably more um more anti-refugee sort of sentiment but mm. that's obviously much lower than you know as you say the, the 50 odd percent so there's obviously some people who i uh, come back to your original question there's obviously some people who would say uh, you know, that they're very anti-refugees and then there's a subset which are obviously just like, they just generally think that we've probably taken in too many refugees but not necessarily are, you know, particularly uh, 
particularly uh, engaged by that particular feature because they're not recognised okay. as an important issue or whatever, you know. That's a fascinating distinction. Uh, we'll leave it there. Kevin Cunningham, MD of Ireland Thinks and also a lecturer in politics in the Technological University of Dublin. Thanks for joining us this morning uh, on the record on News Talk. Uh, that brings us to 11.36. Uh, Tanya Ward and Gina Cahill are still with me to discuss uh, that in the papers. Um, I think it's an interesting nuance, um, Tanya. Now, I'm not just saying that because it's a question that I just asked, but I, I do think it's, it's an interesting nuance as to whether when people say, have we taken in too many refugees, is it a sentiment against refugees yeah. or is it just concern that we have basically it, bitten off it, more we can it's chew? It's the right question. If you put a poll question out there, has Ireland taken on too many refugees? It, it's actually the right question to ask. What does that actually mean? And I would think the vast majority of people who said yes to that are people who are concerned when they see refugees in tents in the snow. You know, mm. um, I, I, I know that even from family members, member organisations. I mean, I had one member organisations contact me before Christmas when they saw the tents in the snow and said, I've offered lots of accommodation to the state and they haven't taken it up what's going on you know mm. why are people in the snow uh, in freezing temperatures uh, so I, I definitely think a big part of that is is actually just general concern about the welfare uh, and about, the, about the, the state's inability to actually provide more accommodation uh, for people because look they, they have done a tremendous job to be quite honest 50,000 Ukrainians have arri- mm. arrived into the country it is a really unique situation the first time we've had a, a war since the second world war in Europe um, and Ireland has done a very good job. People have worked around the clock. But I, I feel like we, we haven't moved from beyond this emergency response where it's like relying on the hoteliers, relying on the BB type accommodation. We haven't moved sufficiently to come up with alternative type accommodation that can be constructed quickly because look, this refugee movement of people will be with us for the next two years. And the Irish people have done an amazing job and the schools in particular is a big success story. Ireland has some of the highest registration rates of Ukrainian children in schools in Europe. And that really shows you what local communities are able to do. But I think the other part of this is we probably haven't gone about it the right way as well. Um, what you're hearing from community activists on the ground is saying, you should come to us and we'll help you, <laughs> you know, instead of, you know, someone in Dublin. Help us uh, plan this. Yeah, help you. us plan that. Yeah. There's someone in Dublin, in, in you know, panics trying to find accommodation. Actually, we should be going out to local communities saying, what can you do to help us? They know where all the accommodation is. They know where the supports and the resources are. They can help plan this. I think that's the bit that has been missing in the government's response. One thing I'm, I'm interested by, um, Sheena, and uh, I, I say this with the precursor that I know you used to be the communications manager at Goshka, the President's Award, so you might have some familiarity with him or his general outlook in life. Um, but Michael D. Higgins, I mean, obviously the role of a president is to try and maintain some kind of societal cohesion. You don't want society to start kind of fraying a little bit. But that... In other circumstances, if the president spoke out as explicitly as he has done in this interview with the Sunday Independent, you'd wonder was he pushing the boundaries of his office? I'm not surprised by the intervention, to be honest with you. I mean, I think that uh, I suppose we're seeing it, obviously, uh, in an interview with Ali Bracken uh, in the Sunday Indo. But I think that ultimately, uh, you know, he has been very clear uh, since the beginning of his, his of his first term uh, around his social justice values. So it's not surprising to me that he he wants to speak out and kind of, I suppose, make an intervention here in the last number of weeks where we have seen I suppose, a growing uh, level of what 
could be understood to be incitement to hatred in a lot of instances where groups are gathering uh, who are actively anti-refugee in their communities or in Ireland as a whole. And so I think the president, you know, I suppose coming out very clearly and saying, you know, that would be a tragic way for us to manage this. This is not who we are. Um, Also, I suppose the reflection of us as an emigrant and emigrating people for generations and the fact that we would all stand over that our, uh, you know, what we contributed to other countries when we landed there uh, was largely positive and we, uh, you know, we created community for ourselves in other places. So we should allow others to do that here. And, you know, I think he made one particular point, which I think is really useful, which is that, you know, in this gap of information, I think, Tanya, you kind of pointed that out that, you know, I suppose one of the key issues we have is around communication with communities. Mm. Uh, the emergency response of this has meant that the department have not been as communicative to communities in the timeline that they'd like to be. But I suppose just to finish, yeah. the, m- m- the president points out that in this gap of information, we should fill that gap with services yeah. because ultimately where a lot of the upset, where the anger is coming from in a lot of particularly working class uh, communities about the, uh, you know, introduction of refugees or asylum seekers in their area is and is the concern rolling off them about the lack of or or I suppose stretch on services yeah. in their yeah. areas already that predated uh, any yes, refugees yeah. coming into uh, the uh, country. Just on, on the note, I'm sorry, Tanya, because given that you have some some experience yeah. of interfacing with this department, this might be something you have some insight on. Because yeah. um, um, Sheena just mentioned there the idea that um, communities don't feel like they are being consulted with. And I'm not sure it's the government's policy to actually consult with them because we've heard from Minister Roderick Gorman, the minister responsible for integration, that nobody has a veto on who gets to live in their communities. And I suspect that there is probably a view within some arms of the state that they don't think it's possible to consult with communities because any consultation that you do or any kind of heads up is only going to invite or will be exploited by those who don't have concerns about community resourcing with those who just simply don't like refugees. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's completely right. But I suppose the, the other side of it is it's not necessarily consultation. I mean, but here's the thing. Focus Ireland does this all the time. They build social housing, including housing for people that might be drug users or alcoholics and stuff like that. And they do have a model where they go in and consult with local representatives before they open up a facility. So there is a model out there of doing this, you know, in a one or two or small facility type of way. I do think, though, there's something in it. There is ne- there is a need to communicate with the community leaders uh, about about what's coming, what, about what's possible. And they would say to you, not only do they not have people available to do this kind of work because they are, you know, there's another headline. They're, they're trying to get people to pay the invoices for the hotels. right? Yeah. So if they're trying to get officials to pay the invoice for the hotels, there's no space or time to actually go out and talk to the community leaders about, look, we, ne- we, we, we need you to work with us on this local community response. Uh, so I think that's really challenging. I think what's really the, the underlying issue is there aren't enough people doing this work. Um, the hoteliers have, you know, played a huge role. Local communities have played a huge role but actually now we need a much bigger response and we need the local councils all around the country involved because they know where all the accommodation is and just to say the other thing the bigger backdrop to all of this and you know, it goes back to what President Higgins talked about the need for services like one of the reasons why we don't have services is because we have labour shortages mm-hmm. and, and you saw there uh, a Nigerian woman being interviewed on the front of the Sunday Times yeah Fearful. Living in direct provision, yeah. working in a but nursing home. But she's working in a nursing home. And that's actually one of the, you know, nursing These home care. These people are looking after yeah. 
uh, some of our most vulnerable citizens. Yeah. They're yeah. working in retail. They're working yeah. in services. Like we need them. We, we need them. We yeah. need them yeah. absolutely. And the idea that any kid is sitting in a direct provision spot or it's some other location or a hotel looking out at a baying mob um, is ap- it, like it's absolutely horrifying. And I think most people, uh, despite uh, you know any suggestion from from the Indo poll, uh, would not want that no. uh, mm. for not just young people, but also for the young men that we're all apparently so afraid of. When actually, you know, we know that the the, the far right who stoke fears about young men invading our communities couldn't care less Unvented most of the time age men. about the, women's they, rights th- those who or lem- their safety. Those who lament that a lot of those arrivals are un- vetted seem to have an awful lot of faith in what Garda vetting involves because uh, it basically just checks that you've got a conviction if you don't that's I mean and you have to be working with children <laughs> to get vetted <laughs> so you, like I mean there's a tiny proportion it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a tiny proportion of population vetted so it, 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 it's a lack of understanding of yeah, actually what no for sure and, and I think that kind of fear mongering and that gossip is just so dangerous and it gets we've seen it grow um, through Facebook groups that were created uh, in and around the time of the pandemic supposedly by local community uh, local community activists um, and then became kind of anti-vaccine spaces for conversation yeah. and have now switched and pivoted mm. to you know being anti-refugee but I suppose back, back to the point that you were making Tanya about the resources I think I genuinely um, I'm just still gobsmacked about what really does feel like the job of an entire department that's been shoved into the Department of Children, uh, of, yeah. of children yeah. uh, so plus, sing, plus, Single plus, Department plus, plus. of Children Disability Equality Integration and Youth, youth. They like, don't even have the disability bit yet They were set up that way like, two and a half years ago and disability is actually still part of health Genuinely gobsmacks me that the that the Department of Housing uh, it has a different uh, you know workload altogether to the housing of people coming from other countries yeah. I mean ultimately this issue goes hand in hand. It is one and the same. Yeah. It is trying to ensure that people have access to a safe place to put yeah. down their yeah. head. Yeah. And ultimately, if we are not seeing more integration in those departments and a whole of government approach yeah. on this, it, it, it makes, this emergency well, that you were talking about, this, this is why there was talk of a junior ends. minister. This is why the, the people yeah. wanted there to be a junior minister to investigate and all Roger that. Roger as a minister, I think has been do- doing as well as he can within our portfolio that is absolutely massive. And on this, I just don't, I think he's complete, I think he's being overwhelmed. Well, you, and you, I think yeah, his, yeah, I mean, his, the people in his department are not yeah. housing officers the, and they're being made to to, yeah. to act like that. Yeah, I, the, the, I think the problem with a department of that size is there's only so much political capital and attention that you have actually, to be honest. So if you need money, you can see a lot of his energy has gone into mother and baby homes. And, and he's, it's gone he's into a, not that it matters, but he's a first time TD and first time yeah. minister yeah. over one of the most Important yeah. ministerial portfolios in our As generation. Was the previous minister for children. Yeah, no I mean, it just, about the job. but it just but it just goes to show you that um, ministerial portfolios like children and youth affairs, um, which is now expanded, gets you know is not seen as important as justice or as finance mm. or what or, or whatever. Like, and actually, this is where the social issues of our day lie, and the the realities of our young people, and yeah. the, you know the, yeah. the, the the future cohesion, and now the cohesion uh, of our communities rests in that department. When we are seeing so many I th- refugees, I, I think I mean I th- I think it's pretty clear at this stage you can't expect like you, you can't expect a government department to continue to just this operational delivery of housing accommodation from a national central point it's just not viable and that's why we are you know yeah. you, you hear the minister on looking for halls etc looking at yeah. looking using luxury liners they're going to have to move to a more permanent solution and take the head out of the emergency mm. and try and be much more forward looking uh, Chris and Saltill texts in about the government strategy
strategy on nursing home charges and litigation. He says, nothing has changed uh, the, as illustrated by the government's current blatant discrimination against tens of thousands of mother and baby home survivors who have been excluded from any form of redress. The fact the government is trying to enshrine that discrimination in law says so much, says Chris and Saltill. Uh, and Honour is in touch. He's saying, are you really saying, this is about my, my observation before the last ad break, are you really saying that the members of the Dole did not pick up their emails in 2020? Was it not sometime in late February or March that the country closed down due to COVID? What I'm saying, Honour, is that it, it is my understanding if, if a TD is listening and they want to, to question this, by all means, get in touch. You know how to get in touch with me. Most TDs do not have access to their emails away from Leinster House. If they need access to their Eroctus emails, they need to have somebody in Leinster House who can forward them on, a staff member or something who can then distribute them afterwards. And Leinster House is closed over Christmas. You just can't get in. It's closed at weekends. You can't get access in there. So if an email was sent to members of the Dáil on December the 23rd, the chances are they wouldn't have even been able to see it before January the 3rd when Leinster House was back open and available for them to go into work or when their their staff might have been off their annual leave. And the Dáil was dissolved on January the 10th of that year, which meant that even if you were a TD, you were no longer a TD, so you probably lost your email address because you weren't a member of the Oireachtas anymore. Um, so it is entirely possible that they might have received an email on December the 23rd and just not seen it for 10 days. What that says about the running of the country, I don't know. Still joined in studio by Sheena Cahill and Tanya Ward as we go through the Sunday papers. Uh, one texter in about the opinion poll question on whether Ireland has accepted too many refugees. They say, similar to the question of whether Ireland is treating too many patients. You wouldn't get many people arguing that Ireland should treat fewer patients, says this person. Rather, the argument would be that they should provide more healthcare resources to cater to the patients that are there. I suspect a similar attitude is what prevails when it comes to refugees, which is a fairly interesting point and thank that texter very much uh, for getting in touch about it as I said Tanya Ward and Sheena Cal still with me to go through some of the papers um, so stories in the Sunday papers um, Sheena you are uh, holding on to page 14 of the Sunday Independent with some glee oh no I rats, just really enjoy mice, <laughs> ants and slugs make their presence felt in Leinster House and that's just the journalists what uh, seems that there is a I didn't say that you said there's that a bit of an invasion issue in Leinster House yeah there's an invasion of the sluggy kind uh, um, yeah so apparently they've been rats burrowing out of drains disease risks and safety hazards for staff as well as slug activity slug activity, slug activity. <laughs> sorry why are we trying to legitimise slug activity uh, we're all highlighted in pest inspection reports at Leinster House and it's complex of buildings last year I'm not a bit surprised They're, it's a really old complex uh, that comprises of the National Library of Ireland on the right hand side and the nat- uh, on the left hand side and the National Museum on the other mm-hmm. and I think um, you know certainly I'm not surprised by uh, by this invasion Um you know, because there's so many nukes and crannies in there. Uh, I'm uh, to- kind of separately, but just related. Uh, just uh, I'm going to put in my oar here, which is that oh. I genuinely think that the front of Leinster House, I think we need to get rid of that car park and it needs to just be this beautiful the, on the biodiversity Street zone. Side. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Not, not um, uh, technically and I not think actually then the, the front. the slugs would have more place yeah. to go, you know, like that's where the pigeons and the slugs and the rats can go and not into the building. There are but bits it, of the Marion Square side, which is the technical front of the estate, which are not actually cut. They've deliberately left it as a wildflower yeah. meadow, but you, you probably right, can't yeah. see because yeah, it's yeah, so far yeah. in off the road. It, it, it is amusing though to hear rats were burrowing out multiple locations in the <laughs> car park not too far from the toilets where there has been a previous infestation. I mean, I can imagine now people what? are going to be running through the car park you know, knowing there's rats about yeah. you know, burrowing in holes here and there. Yeah, like um, in May there was actually an article in the Irish Examiner uh, which led with mice in a medical room, rats in a gent's toilet, slugs in a basement and fouling next to the minister's entrance where some of the pest issues recorded at Leinster House during the past six months. So obviously they've now uh, taken on 
on those on board and they've gone after yeah. all those logos. Fouling next to the where? <laughs> minister's office. <laughs> Which minister? But that's that's uh, it's it's bird fowl. We should we should stress. I think yeah. I think the issue is that it's bird no, dropping. Nobody nobody has has carried a bag no. of dung and placed it in front of a minister uh, on this occasion. No, that, that generally d- doesn't happen inside yeah. the gates of uh, of Leinster House. Pat Rahini says, "Are you seriously telling us that in 2019 or 20, Oireachtas members don't have access to email outside the physical location that is Leinster House and not on mobile devices? Seriously, most secondary school kids have the school accounts on mobile devices. Not credible that the members of Oireachtas don't. I know it's wild. I I know it's wild. It's a security. Wild like the inside of oh, the Thank you, right. thank you, thank you. Very good. Uh, I I know it's weird and it seems like an anachronism. Apparently, it's a security thing. But basically, uh, plenty of times where I've been in touch with Oireachtas members yeah. before, uh, asking if if something could be shared onwards, a, a note that they've received quite, from some NGO you've or some. Quite the ruckus here now, Gavin, about this. And look at lads, I'm, I'm telling you, again, if there's any TDs who can contest that, uh, get in touch. Sorry, one of them has. Uh, we all, sorry, excuse me. Uh, we all have home access to emails on our Surface Pros, at least since I was elected, says a first time TD. Many have them on their phones as well. See, again, it's a first time TD and no disrespect to that person and I'm very pleased they got in touch. But that might not have been the case Back before time. COVID yeah, times, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, which is yeah. the issue. Um, there is one other piece on the front page of the Sunday Independent that I wanted to ask about, Tanya. Um, yeah. our, um, the national issue of booze buying and whether minimum unit pricing has done anything. And it appears really not to have done very much to adjust our alcohol buying habits at all. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit disappointing to see that spirits have been bought at the at the same levels because I suppose the whole idea of minimum pricing is that, you know, you, you make a- alcohol less accessible and available and people buy less of it because generally there's lots of research that shows when it comes to alcohol and in fact, to be honest, junk food uh, as well, that basically a lot of it is impulse buying or uh, people have a tendency to buy more when it's cheaper. Um, I'd love to see this, I suppose, uh, you know, I suppose a number of years down the line to see does it have a does it have a bigger effect in changing behaviours. Mm. I'd say if you are an alcohol user and spirits is your drink and you're an alcohol, it's an alcoholic, it's, it's not going to make much of a difference. Yeah. But say you're that person in the middle, you probably have a tendency to drink less if, you know, you, you mightn't have an addiction, but you might drink less. And, and there's no doubt that all the studies show the more you drink, the more likely you are to be, uh, you're more likely to get cancer and other kind of diseases. So it's a general public health measure designed to try and cut down on these other big health conditions and the bigger issue is more like from my perspective from a children and young person's perspective like alcohol blights families there's absolutely blights families it blights children's lives it blights families' lives so and, and there's lots of studies showing if you do try and limit the amount of alcohol available families do drink mm. less uh, The inevitable texts to 53106 they're not enough rats in Leinster House already they'll feel welcome with the four-legged friends uh, says one texter You invited that Gavin I did I did to be fair and I, you know and, and then that's just the journalist what? Um, anyway I will stop uh, flogging that dead horse and I will leave it there uh, Tanya Ward Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance and Sheena Cahill former President of USI now with DHR Communications. Thank you both very much for joining me. On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.